Section 58 of the Kerner Commission Report. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Report of the National Advisory Commission on Civil Disorders, Kerner Commission Report. Chapter 17 Recommendations for National Action, Part 9. Existing Programs. To date, federal building programs have been able to do comparatively little to provide housing for the disadvantaged. In the 31-year history of subsidized federal housing, only about 800,000 units have been constructed, with recent production averaging about 50,000 units a year. By comparison, over a period only three years longer, FHA insurance guarantees have made possible the construction of over 10 million middle- and upper-income units. Federal programs also have done little to prevent the growth of racially segregated suburbs around our cities. Until 1949, FHA official policy was to refuse to insure any unsegregated housing. It was not until the issuance of Executive Order 11063 in 1962, that the agency required non-discrimination pledges from loan applicants. It is only within the last few years that a range of programs has been created that appears to have the potential for substantially relieving the urban housing problem. Direct federal expenditures for housing and community development have increased from $600 million in fiscal 1964 to nearly $3 billion in fiscal 1969. To produce significant results, however, these programs must be employed on a much larger scale than they have been so far. In some cases, the constraints and limitations imposed upon the programs must be reduced. In a few instances, supplementary programs should be created. In all cases, incentives must be provided to induce maximum participation by private enterprise in supplying energy, imagination, capital, and production capabilities. Federal housing programs must also be given a new thrust, aimed at overcoming the prevailing patterns of racial segregation. If this is not done, those programs will continue to concentrate the most impoverished and dependent segments of the population into the central city ghettos, where there is already a critical gap between the needs of the population and the public resources to deal with them. This can only continue to compound the conditions of failure and hopelessness, which lead to crime, civil disorder, and social disorganization. Basic Strategies we believe the following basic strategies should be adopted. The supply of housing suitable for low-income families should be expanded on a massive basis. The basic reason many Negroes are compelled to live in inadequate housing is the failure of the private market to produce decent housing at rentals they can afford to pay. Programs we have recommended elsewhere are directed toward raising income levels, Yet it is obvious that in the foreseeable future there will continue to be a gap between the income of many Americans and the price of decent housing produced by the normal market mechanisms. Thus, the implementation of the strategy depends on programs which not only generate more lower-cost housing, 
but also raise the rent-paying capability of low-income households. Areas outside of ghetto neighborhoods should be opened up to occupancy by racial minorities. Provision of decent, low-cost housing will solve only part of the problem. Equally fundamental is the elimination of the racial barrier in housing. Residential segregation prevents equal access to employment opportunities and obstructs efforts to achieve integrated education. A single society cannot be achieved as long as this cornerstone of segregation stands. Suggested Programs we are proposing programs in ten areas to illustrate how we believe basic strategies we have outlined can be put into effect. Provision of 600,000 low- and moderate-income housing units next year, and 6 million units over the next five years. An expanded and modified below-market interest rate program an expanded and modified rent supplement program, and an ownership supplement program. Federal write-down of interest rates on loans to private builders. An expanded and more diversified public housing program. An expanded model cities program. A reoriented and expanded urban renewal program. Reform of obsolete building codes. Enactment of a National, Comprehensive, and Enforceable Open Occupancy Law. Reorientation of federal housing programs to place more low- and moderate-income housing outside of ghetto areas. The supply of housing suitable for low-income families should be expanded. The Commission recommends provision of 600,000 low- and moderate-income housing units next year and 6 million units over the next five years. Some 6 million substandard housing units are occupied in the United States today, and well over that number of families lack sufficient income to rent or buy standard housing without spending over 25% of their income and thus sacrificing other essential needs. The problem promises to become more critical with the expanded rate of family formation on the immediate horizon, and the increasing need to replace housing which has been destroyed or condemned. In our view, the dimension of the need calls for an unprecedented national effort. We believe that the nation's housing programs must be expanded to bring within the reach of low- and moderate-income families 600,000 new and existing units next year, and 6 million units over the next five years. This proposal can only be implemented if present subsidy programs are extended, so that a. a part of the existing housing inventory can be brought within the reach of lower-income families, and b. private enterprise can become a major factor in the low-cost housing field, both in terms of the construction capabilities of private developers and the capital of private institutional lenders. In the sections that follow, we discuss specific programs that must be part of this expanded national effort. An Expanded and Modified Below-Market Interest Rate Program The Below-Market Interest Rate Program, which makes long-term low-interest financing available to non-profit and limited-profit sponsors, is the best mechanism presently available for engaging private enterprise in the task of providing moderate and lower-income housing. 
Several limitations, however, prevent the program from providing the quantity of housing that is needed. Funding levels are inadequate to launch a national program. Nonprofit sponsors are deterred by lack of seed money to finance pre-construction costs, and limited profit corporations are deterred by the statutory prohibition on transfer or refinancing projects for 20 years without FHA permission. We recommend that funding levels of the program be substantially increased. We also recommend that legislation be enacted to permit interest-free loans to nonprofit sponsors to cover pre-construction costs and to allow limited profit corporations to sell projects to nonprofit corporations, cooperatives, or condominiums. Though the potential of the program is great, it presently serves few truly low-income families. Current costs average $14,400 per unit, making the typical rental for a two-bedroom unit $110 per month, thereby in effect requiring a minimum annual income of $5,300. Only with rent supplements can poor families afford housing commanding rents of this amount. But the amount of rent supplement funds which can be used in such developments is limited by statute to 5% of the total appropriation for the rent supplement program, in order to make below-market interest-rate housing available to low- as well as moderate-income families, we recommend that the 5% limitation be removed, and that the overall funding of rent supplements be greatly expanded. We also recommend that serious consideration be given to expanding the interest subsidy under the program in order to lower the rate for sponsors. An expanded and modified rent supplement program and an ownership supplement program. The rent supplement program offers a highly flexible tool for subsidizing housing costs because it permits adjustment of the subsidy according to the income of the tenant. The project financing is at market rates, so that tenants who do not qualify for supplements must pay market rentals. Potentially, therefore, these developments can provide an alternative to public housing for low-income families while still attracting middle-income families. We believe, however, that several changes are necessary if the full potential of this program is to be realized. First, we recommend that existing regulations restricting architectural design, imposing rigid unit cost standards, and limiting tenant income to amounts lower than required by statute be removed. These regulations diminish the attractiveness of the program to private developers and represent a major barrier to substantial expansion of the program. Second, the statutory limitation of rent supplements to new or rehabilitated housing should be changed to permit the use of rent supplements in existing housing. In many areas, removal of the restriction would make possible a major increase of the program without requiring investment in new construction. This option must be made available if the program is to be expanded to its fullest potential. Third, the rent supplement concept should be extended to provide home ownership opportunities for low-income families. The ambition to own one's own home is shared by virtually all Americans, 
and we believe it is in the interest of the nation to permit all who share such a goal to realize it. Home ownership would eliminate one of the most persistent problems facing low-income families in rental housing, poor maintenance by absentee landlords, and would provide many low-income families with a tangible stake in society for the first time. The Senate Banking and Currency Committee recently approved a bill that would establish a program to pay a portion of the mortgage payments of low-income families seeking to purchase homes. As with rent supplements, subsidy payments would decrease as the purchaser's income rose. The income limits of the program, 70% of the below-market interest rate eligibility limits, would greatly impair its usefulness, in our opinion, and should be eliminated. With that reservation, we strongly endorse the concept, urge that such a program of ownership supplements be enacted, and recommend that it be funded on a basis that will permit its wide use in achieving the goal of six million units for low- and moderate-income families over the next five years. Federal Write-Down of Interest Rates on Loans to Private Builders to make private loan capital available, we recommend direct federal write-down of interest rates on market-rate loans to private construction firms for moderate-rent housing. This program would make it possible for any qualified builder to enter the moderate-rent housing field on the basis of market-rate financing, provided that the project meets necessary criteria, the federal government would enter into a contract with the financing institution to supply the difference between the mortgage payment at the market interest rate and 20% of the tenant's monthly income to a specified maximum write-down which would make the interest rate paid by the tenant equivalent to 1 or 2%. An Expanded and More Diversified Public Housing Program Since its establishment in 1937, the public housing program has produced only some 650,000 low-rent housing units. Insufficient funding has prevented construction of a quantity more suited to the need, and unrealistic unit cost limitations have mandated that most projects be of institutional design and mammoth size. The resulting large concentration of low-income families has often created conditions generating great resistance in communities to new projects of this type. We believe that there is a need for substantially more public housing, but we believe that the emphasis of the program should be changed from the traditional publicly built slum-based high-rise project to smaller units on scattered sites. Where traditional high-rise projects are constructed, Facilities for social services should be included in the design, and a broad range of such services provided for tenants. To achieve the shift in emphasis we have recommended, we urge, first, expansion of present programs under which public housing authorities lease existing scattered site units. Present statutory restrictions on long-term leasing should be eliminated to provide incentives for private construction and financing. Families whose incomes increase above the public housing limit should be permitted to take over the leases of their units from the housing authority. We also urge expansion of present turnkey programs, 
under which housing authorities purchase low-rent units constructed by private builders instead of constructing the units themselves here too families whose incomes rise above the public housing limits should be permitted to stay in the units at market rentals an expanded model cities program the model cities program is potentially the most effective weapon in the federal arsenal for a long-term comprehensive attack on the problems of american cities it offers a unique means of developing local priorities coordinating all applicable government programs including those relating to social development for example education and health as well as physical development and encouraging innovative plans and techniques its block grant multi-purpose funding feature allows the city to deploy program funds with much greater flexibility than is possible under typical categorical grant programs and the statutory requirement that there be widespread citizen participation and maximum employment of area residents in all phases of the program promises to involve community residents in a way we think most important the full potential of the program can be achieved however only if a the model cities program is funded at a level which gives the cities involved an opportunity and incentive to produce significant results and b the various programs which can be brought into play under model cities such as urban renewal below market interest rate housing and health education and welfare programs are independently supported at levels which permit model cities funds to be used for essentially innovative purposes appropriations must also be sufficient to expand coverage far beyond the sixty-three cities that currently are funded the president has recommended that one billion dollars be appropriated for model cities we strongly support this recommendation as a minimum start noting that a much greater scale of funding will ultimately be necessary if the program proves successful and if it is to be made available to all the cities that require such aid a reoriented and expanded urban renewal program urban renewal has been an extremely controversial program since its inception we recognize that in many cities it has demolished more housing than it has erected and that it has often caused dislocation among disadvantaged groups nevertheless we believe that a greatly expanded though reoriented urban renewal program is necessary to the health of our cities urban renewal is an essential component of the model cities program and in its own right is an essential tool for any city attempting to preserve social and economic vitality substantially increased funding will be necessary if urban renewal is to become a reality in all the cities in which renewal is needed a reorienting of the program is necessary to avoid past deficiencies the department of housing and urban development has recognized this and has promulgated policies giving top priority to urban renewal projects that directly assist low-income households in obtaining adequate housing projects aimed primarily at bolstering the economic strength of downtown areas or at creating housing for upper-income groups while reducing the supply of low-cost housing will have low priority unless they are part of a balanced program including a strong focus on the needs of low-income groups
With these priorities in mind, we recommend substantial expansion of the program. Reform of Obsolete Building Codes Approximately 5,000 separate jurisdictions in the United States have building codes. Many of these local codes are antiquated and contain obsolete requirements that prevent builders from taking advantage of new technology. Beyond the factor of obsolescence, the very variety of the requirements prevents the mass production and standardized design that could significantly lower building costs. Opinions differ as to whether a uniform national code is yet feasible, but it is clear that much greater uniformity is possible than presently exists. We urge state and local governments to undertake the task of modernizing their codes at once, and recommend that the Department of Housing and Urban Development design for their guidance a model national code. We can no longer afford the waste caused by arbitrary and archaic building codes. Areas outside of ghetto neighborhoods should be opened up to occupancy by racial minorities. The Commission recommends enactment of a national, comprehensive, and enforceable open occupancy law. The federal government should enact a comprehensive and enforceable open occupancy law, making it an offense to discriminate in the sale or rental of any housing, including single-family homes, on the basis of race, creed, color, or national origin. In recent years, various piecemeal attempts have been made to deal with the problem of housing discrimination. Executive Order 11063, issued by President Kennedy in 1962, provided that agreements for federally assisted housing made after the date of the order must be covered by enforceable non-discrimination pledges. Congress, in enacting Title VI of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, promulgated a broad national policy of non-discrimination with respect to programs or activities receiving federal financial assistance, including public housing and urban renewal. Eighteen states and more than forty cities have enacted fair housing laws of varying degrees of effectiveness. Despite these actions, the great bulk of housing produced by the private sector remains unaffected by anti-discrimination measures. So long as this continues, public and private action at the local level will be inhibited by the argument that local action produces competitive disadvantage. We have canvassed the various alternatives and have come to the firm opinion that there is no substitute for the enactment of a federal fair housing law. The key to breaking down housing discrimination is universal and uniform coverage, and such coverage is obtainable only through federal legislation. We urge that such a statute be enacted at the earliest possible date. Open housing legislation must be translated into open housing action. Real estate boards should work with fair housing groups in communities where such groups exist, and help form them in areas where they do not exist. The objective of voluntary community action should be, one, the full dissemination of information concerning available housing to minority groups, and two, providing information to the community concerning the desirability of open housing. Reorientation of federal housing programs 
to place more low and moderate income housing outside of ghetto areas enactment of a national fair housing law will eliminate the most obvious barrier limiting the areas in which non-whites live but it will not deal with an equally impenetrable barrier the unavailability of low and moderate income housing in non-ghetto areas to date housing programs serving low-income groups have been concentrated in the ghettos non-ghetto areas particularly suburbs have for the most part steadfastly opposed low-income rent supplement or below-market interest rate housing and have successfully restricted the use of these programs outside the ghetto we believe that federally aided low and moderate income housing programs must be reoriented so that the major thrust is in non-ghetto areas public housing programs should emphasize scattered site construction rent supplements should whenever possible be used in non-ghetto areas and an intensive effort should be made to recruit below market interest rate sponsors willing to build outside the ghettos the reorientation of these programs is particularly critical in light of our recommendation that six million low and middle income housing units be made available over the next five years if the effort is not to be counterproductive its main thrust must be in non-ghetto areas particularly those outside the central city end of section fifty eight recording by maria casper